Welcome to the 12th episode of All of the Above, a weekly podcast about design, code, and learning, where an instructional designer, a full-stack designer, and a software engineer take apart the world one topic at a time. We are recording on February 9th, 2015. My name is Brian Brush, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sam Bantner. Hello. And Sean Duran. Hi, guys. And this week, we have a very special guest, Scott Ryan Hart. We're incredibly happy that he's here joining us. So, uh, Scott, go ahead and say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. Perfect. You're clearly a father. You have that uh, <laughs> that dad joke of repeating exactly what we say. <laughs> so before we kick everything off, I just wanted to have a sort of moment where we can learn who you are and uh, what some of the research that you've been doing, uh, because this week's episode is centered around voice as a user interface. Well, um, I am in my last semester at Kent State University for my master's in user experience design, and uh, I just completed my uh, the, the final project that we had, which was uh, looking at adoption rates for Siri and why Siri is has had a high ado- uh, had a high usage rate at the beginning, and then it just kind of trickled off. We did a pretty extensive online survey system, and we uh, also interviewed about 10 uh, different Siri users uh, to find out where the disconnect was between uh, what their expectations were uh, were for Siri and then what the actual application for Siri was. So that's kind of my research in a nutshell. Yeah, and it is something that I know, at least for the three of us on the show, is probably of interest considering our past association with what we refer to as the fruit store, um, where we had to interact with Siri a lot and show people and teach people how to use that. So we're going to be breaking down sort of the world of voice as a user interface. Sean and Sam, did you guys have any thoughts before I sort of jump into my topic for the week? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, Mr. Scott. Yes. I was wondering, how did you uh, come up with this idea to like do this as a research project for your thesis? Well, actually, the uh, my partner in the study, Alicia Arp, who was another uh, student at Kent State, her husband is starting to have some uh, eye issues, and he's starting to. They, they know that eventually they're going to have to use more of a uh, verbal user interface with uh, their technology, and mm-hmm. she was a little appalled at the state of the verbal uh, interface that was going on, mainly because what she was being sold by the marketers was a fully conversational interface. And what it actually is, is a bunch of user commands that you can, uh, it's, a, it's a library of user commands that you can access. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's kind of where a lot of it started from. So we just kind of built from there. Cool. As uh, it is, uh, Sean, I'll let you go. No, you can go, Brad. Uh, I was going to say it is a, a very interesting sort of challenge with how it is marketed as like something that has a personality and a character to it. And on our uh, episode that we've just recorded the other night, um, we spent some time talking with Sean about how we're designing personalities into applications and Siri and then like Windows response with Cortana are portrayed as these things that have a personality. But yet when you actually try to have a conversation with them, you end up running into that wall of having to refer to a specific set of commands. So that is a weird challenge between how it's marketed to us and how it is actually implemented. And that's actually where the adoption rate kind of dies with it. What was interesting in the um, interviews that I did with uh, the interviews that I had and the interviews that Alicia had uh, is once we kind of explained after the interview was over, we kind of explained what Siri actually is and, you know, how you use those uh, those commands to actually do very specific uh, tasks within your uh, phone. The people that we were talking to were like, well, that makes a lot more sense <laughs> uh, I because they were constantly getting 
uh, you know, series patented, I don't know, let me look that up for you, uh, (laughs) response, or um, I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. Try again in a couple of minutes. And that... That error message is quite possibly one of the most useless error messages known to man. Uh, yeah. the, the the response is basically Siri saying no. Yeah. And <laughs> no explanation as to why. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of a, a when when Siri is explained to be a, a set of commands that you can use to interface very specific functions within your phone. Uh, people actually like it better because it does better when you know that that's what it's doing. Yeah, because when you uh, when it just says pretty much no straight to your face it doesn't really help you at all oh god no (laughs) no it just it's it's there it's not really even like acknowledging like a a useful error message would be no i'm sorry your connectivity is not great right now i can't look that up or you know i'm sorry we're doing some maintenance that uh right now on my servers please try again in about 15 minutes something like that something with more meat to it other than i'm sorry i can't do that again that right now Try again in a couple of minutes. Like, that's not helpful. I think also, I, I, I imagine when you were getting into this uh, on your last conversation with uh, the personality that Siri has, I think that personality has also done a disservice to the actual application that it is. Because the application is not bad. It's, it's, it's not poorly implemented at all. It's just oversold as to what it can do. And the, the pithy responses and the Easter egg pieces that are in it are part of the problem that's associated with it. Because when you ask Siri, you know, do you think I'm pretty? And Siri gives you a, a funny response. You think you can actually have a conversation with Siri, and you can't. Yeah. It's, it's just it's not possible. Uh, so that's kind of uh, I think in many ways those little Easter eggs and pithy responses do do actually do it a disservice because people are expecting more from it than what it actually can give. That reminds me of a story. It was a kid that had like autism, and yes. he had conversations with Siri, even though it. it it's not really a conversation. You just like the directness. Like, oh, no, you can't do that? Okay. <laughs> you just sort of, it sort of became like his friend, which is yes. a uh, touching it, story. It, it's, it is kind of a touching story. Um, it also goes with what uh, Siri can answer, can sometimes answer very direct questions. And oftentimes the questions that are being asked by kids are often very direct questions. So when my son looks at, at my phone and says, hey, what's that plane that's overhead? Seer can answer that usually pretty well. That's United Flight, whatever. But uh, Siri can't answer existential questions or open-ended questions. And typically kids don't ask those. So uh, I could definitely see a a kid having a conversation with Siri that was fulfilling to the kid uh, Mm -hmm. that, that, um, that could actually work. Well, that actually, and speaking of sort of interaction with these tools um, with children and how they're going to respond to them differently than say like adults will use them where we almost intentionally try to trick Siri. It's a weird like semi-abusive relationship (laughs) at time where we just end up asking it questions that we know will give a ridiculous answer that it won't be able to answer just because we want to see what its limits are. But I was thinking of with my topic um, how these digital assistants are being used and implemented in education and how they affect education. So to sort of jump into that, one of the things that I was 
most intrigued about with these voice UIs uh, and digital assistants is how they're replacing many of the more mundane tasks in our life. So as you guys were saying, those direct questions they can answer. So when you wake up in the morning and you're wondering what the weather is, you can just ask that out loud and receive an answer. answer. So it's saving you from either having to put on the news and listen for when the weather report comes on or find that app and dig through the information. You can just ask and receive an answer right away. Um, and it can also replace the more ridiculous moments in our life, like when we're trying to remember who that one actress is and that one thing that we saw. So this had me sort of pondering how these tools will affect education. And previously on the show, we had discussed uh, the ease at which we can access data in the digital age. And voice-activated tools um, take this ease of access one step further. Um, so if we were to consider, say, a teacher asking a student to solve and graph a basic mathematic equation, um, a student could now just simply turn to their phone, repeat the question to the phone, and receive both the answer and uh, a visual graph all at once from a tool like Siri. So because of these, we sort of have to reevaluate the way we teach and what it is we're teaching. So my question for you guys was, as access to these tools such as Siri become more prevalent, um, how do you feel that this is going to affect uh, education and what, what it is that we're teaching? Scott, would you want to lead us off with that? Sure. Um, I, I think I think one of the things that, that we might be running into is old man syndrome here, because I remember as a kid, when I was in high school, uh, graphic calculators uh, had just come yeah. out, and a lot of these same questions that you're asking here uh, were being asked about, well, now kids can just graph you know, the, the equation on their graphic calculator, and they don't even have to know how to graph it themselves. And uh, when my brother was, was in high school, the, 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 the culprit was programmable calculators. And then yeah. when my dad was in high school, it was calculators. And, you know, if you go back into the uh, 1850s, it's the, the chalkboard slate is the issue. Um, you know, so I, I think there's always these, these stretch points associated with uh, education and uh, the new technologies that, that, have to, that will be employed. And now... Uh, what I see happening in, in school with my children, because I have a I have an 11 year old boy who's in fifth grade right now, uh, is he's already using computers in a way that I never had the opportunity to as a kid. Uh, so I'm not sure how you um, how education will uh, deal with this change, but it, education will deal with this change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's actually I've. One of the things when I was first thinking of this is there is the same sort of analogy that you made of thinking of graphing calculators and programmable calculators and all of that. And it made me sort of stop and realize like every time that these new tools get implemented, we usually start to think, well, let's just focus on teaching the concept or how to analyze this information and not focus so much on actually plotting out pieces of information on a graphing paper. But Sean, what was your thoughts on this? Yeah, it, it'd be more like uh, just leveraging the technology to free up the humans to better do what they do. So instead of having, for example, me, Sean, washing dishes by hand, I can have a dishwasher do them, and then I can free up time to do other things. So same concept here. Instead of having like a slide ruler or an abacus to <laughs> deal with all these numbers and trying to figure out all the concepts, or not the concepts, the, the calculations, it, it's done for me as long as I am in the pursuit of some kind of goal. So I guess this would be more learning rather than 
just becoming like a calculator robot myself, like just doing times tables. That doesn't really help anyone or further mankind. It helps me understand how to multiply two numbers, but it, it's not really in the end advancing humankind, really. <laughs> and uh, Sam, what are your thoughts? Well, kind of going off what Sean just said, it kind of sounds like uh, we're making these machines to free us up to make more machines so they can literally take over. <laughs> So you're yes. back to the Skynet thing again. <laughs> just the way, that's what I was thinking or, of when uh, Sean yeah. was talking about it. I was just like, yeah, so we're trying to like free up all of our time to focus on other things, which we'll focus on just making these machines better and creating better things. And then you have the whole matrix. So that's what's happening. And Scott, you may not be familiar with this running gag with <laughs> us, but Sam seems to believe that the matrix is a documentary and not a fictional take on the world. Um, the, the first one, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. We, don't, we, pre- we pretend the other ones didn't happen. Okay. Just, just like the, uh, the second trilogy of yeah. Star Wars movies. <laughs> so um, that actually, uh, a lot of what you're saying uh, reminded me of a, of a short story I read a long, long, long time ago uh, by Isaac Asimov. I, I just looked it up, and the name of it's called The Feeling of Power. And it was a, one of his short stories that he did a long time ago, in 1958. And it was about it's about these uh, scientists rediscovering pencil and paper mathma- uh, mathematics uh, because they had been uh, dependent on computers for so long. They're like, no, really, look, watch. It's like two, and then you put two, and it's four. Uh, uh, so yeah, I, I do think we are we might be heading towards something like that. And I think that is sort of what everyone was sort of coming to a conclusion on here with is that these tools can be used to sort of improve education by reducing our need to focus on sort of just the the basic fundamentals of writing out the work and showing our work and focusing more on what that work means for us and how it can affect us. But there is still something to knowing the fundamentals and being able to go back to look at that pen and paper so we don't end up in the Isaac Asimov type world. <laughs> and uh, I was also just thinking like creating these machines to free up time to give us more time to create more machines. It, I feel like we have to figure out like what to do with all this extra time instead of wasting it on Netflix or something like that, which is very easy to do. <laughs> uh, it, I think that will be the biggest challenge of all this, like taking out the laborious stuff out of it and just figure out what to do with that extra time. I think that will be the one of the bigger challenges. I believe if one is to look at what my children do, it's Minecraft. Ah, yes. <laughs> Which uh, Minecraft is so intriguing just in the fact that it can consume so much time, but it taps into creative muscles and flexing those. There's a lot of time consumed within that and i've not played it i've only ever watched it and one of these days i'll have to sit down and see if i can figure out the appeal but i'm also afraid that i will end up in a world of just minecraft and never be able to come back out of it i think it's a generational thing i really do because i do not get it i do not get it at all and i'm glad my kids like it but i don't get it (laughs) Uh, have you tried playing with them like uh yeah i have but in many ways my kids don't actually play the game. My my kids build houses. My kid, it's it's kind of like virtual Legos, which is kind of awesome. Yeah. Um, but they don't actually uh, they don't play the game. And I guess I'm too far along from being a kid um, 
to really just get into the the creative aspects of it and find that to be fulfilling. I, I guess I am too much of the school of when you play a computer game, there there is a a goal in mind, and you know their goal is to you know make a treehouse that's awesome. So. Yeah, I almost wonder if it's going to spawn a whole world of just architecture majors in the future. <laughs> that could so be. We'll find out what comes of it. And I'm going to send a picture to you guys that we'll have to include in our show notes. But when Sean was saying we might just end up wasting all of this extra time that we find, um, it reminded me of the little clip from Wally when he first sees the humans. Oh, yeah. And all they're doing is just driving around and staring at screens all day long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't have any uh, other additional points to that. I just I think that it is something that we'll have to see how these tools end up affecting us in our rule through education, um, but also see how we can use them to our benefit and possibly free up time to focus on educating our students on additional material beyond just how to perform the calculations. So Sam, do we want to switch over to your topic now on perceptive user interface? Yeah, yeah. Now's a good time to do it. Uh, so really, I have several questions, and I'm going to kind of toss things out there. I don't know the answers to them. I'm not a user interface designer. This is one thing that I'm just not too good at. But uh, while I was in school, I uh, helped one of my professors, I don't lecturers, they were a PhD student. I helped them with a user interface of the future, which was no UI. That's what he called it. So it was pretty cool, fun stuff. But uh, really the question is, why do we need a user interface and what is the role of a user interface? So when computers first came around, the role was really to translate between application and user semantics. But now we're getting into things where we don't really need a heads up display or something actually showing us what's going on. All we need is a little bit of feedback. When we interact with one another, we don't have something like in the Sims like just bars of information that tell us that, oh, you're hungry or you're this or you're that. This is all stuff that we kind of perceive from one another one another from talking. So how do we go about the real world without a user interface? And why are we tying a user interface into this digital reality that we're kind of bringing upon ourselves? So really what I'm getting at is uh. what is the role of a user interface in the future of user interfaces kind of disappearing. So speaking to, for example, how with tools like Siri, if these actually grow and get better, where we can just use natural language or as it's marketed to us, natural language to interact with things and no longer need screens and something within our field of vision that we interact with, that sort of thing. Yeah, field of vision or even uh, the neural aspect of everything. What if we start tapping into... uh biomedical technology where it's always connected to us and we just feel things that way. What types of interfaces are we going to be dealing with then? And is this little gap that we have right now, the voice recognition, is that really something that's as important as the future to where there might not be a user interface at all? All right. Well, this um, one's a tough one. I'm going to let uh, <laughs> Sean lead that one. Oh, I was going to... Ah, that's a there's. I don't think you can answer this correctly at all. The good uh, thing is, I don't think you can answer incorrectly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
So we'll we'll just come back to it twenty years from now <laughs> and see if you got it right, Sean. Okay, let's do this. Um, right now, user interfaces are just a way for a user, which is currently mostly humans. They could be primates, dogs, cats, whatever, um, to interact with a computer system, whatever that may be. I'm trying to go really broad here. And r- right now, it's mostly graphical user interfaces, GUIs. Um, with Siri and Cortana, Google Now, or I think that's all. There's it's voices as the user interface, but you also have a graphical one as well, as sort of helping out. <laughs> if you have a thing in your brain implanted, then I guess the interface would just be your thoughts, and then you have to control your thoughts. Well. So if you have a computer, it has to. It's not a human. It hasn't it? Doesn't innately know things. If I throw a ball at a robot and it doesn't know how to catch or respond to a an item thrown at its face, then it's just gonna take it. But if I throw a ball at one of you guys, you probably will put up your hands, catch it, dodge it, what have you. So there's just a lot of these little things that you have to tell the robot. It it can't learn right now. I mean. It, if you have Watson, it can learn stuff, IBM's machine. So, yeah, thoughts as an interface is the way to do it. Because right now, the if we were to talk face-to-face, that I guess the interface would just be our faces <laughs> facing each other. Um, I, I'm going down rabbit holes upon rabbit holes. I'm, I think I'm done. I'm going to pass this baton off. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to jump into something that you had said, um, Sean, which is how our thoughts would become the interface, um, assuming we are living in this world that Sam is mentioning where biomedical tech allows us to sort of control things just by thinking of them. But whenever I am walking through like sort of a thought process in my head and trying to figure out how I want to accomplish something or what it is that I want to do, I spend a lot of time visualizing that. So I'm creating a visual user interface within my mind's eye and working through steps and processes that way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know even if we switched to a system where things are for the most part all based off of our thoughts that we're really getting rid of the user interface at that point because I'm still creating them. And I think that's how the best UI and UX designers end up creating such great work is that they think like, all right, when somebody's thinking through a process and trying to understand how to accomplish something, how would they perceive that and how would they think to work through it? And they're essentially taking what's happening in our mind's eye and trying to reproduce it in a logical manner on screen or through voice controls or whatever it may be. So I don't think that even if we reach that point, we would really be getting rid of a user interface, we would just be sort of conceptualizing it in a different way. But with that, Scott, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I would just say to piggyback on what you were saying there is that I do think it becomes more of a user-defined user interface. Because if you think about uh, different learning styles and different visualization techniques, um, like I'm a very graphic uh, uh, visualizer as well. Everything I do is, you know, uh, is very dimensional it uh it's 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 something visual that i I can i can close my eyes and and picture that being said i know that there are people out there who are very uh much much stronger auditory processors than i am and a lot of what they do is uh through they learn better through uh listening and and uh, being uh taught through lecture and that sort of thing and that's not where my strength is my strength is i'm a visual learner and uh, so 
I do think that when the interface becomes a uh, a mental interface with something, at that point, it's almost like the the user is going to define their own interface at that point because I know for a fact that a couple of my friends would not visualize uh, some sort of interface, which I would visualize, but they would uh, end up having a conversation with their, their interface instead of a more of like a visual conversation that I would end up having. So I do think that once things go cerebral, it will uh, be much more user-defined and much more individual from from user to user to user. So that's what I would say about that. Yeah, and it's uh, UI and UX designers will be without job, of course, but at least they won't have to listen to somebody complain, why is this button here? Or why does that take seven clicks to get to? Because now it's all the user's fault. Well, that's still, um, it, with like a, just like user experience, if you just break it apart, it, it's more, not a, um, just define like where buttons should go, but it would also sort of determine the flow of things. Correct. Um, so it could be instead of setting up systems in such a way, like as we can think of them right now, but it would be more like setting constraints. Like, okay, you have this kind of uh, time tracking app. You can do this, 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 but you can't do this, this. So it allows that maybe it's instead of a uh, designing for an experience, it is design to avoid certain experiences which it already is but it'd be maybe more of that making more like roadblocks and safety nets to make sure the user is like oh right. i i think i should invest on in all these penny stocks and you're like no 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 stop 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 are you sure you want to invest on all your money in this penny stock I, I think it's uh, uh, like you say. I think it's um, at that point the user uh, design, the user experience design is much more of interactive storytelling. And how do you lead mm-hmm. someone from from the beginning of a story to to the end of the story or to the culmination of whatever that story is? Uh, and if they if they jump in at any point, can you get them back on on plot? So yeah, yeah I, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> like your choose your own adventure yes. sort of style book. Yeah, so it's almost like. We've created these types of rings, like power rings, that the Lantern Corps use to conjure like these interfaces that could just work with anybody. Or at least that's what I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> As a fellow comic geek, I can appreciate your uh, hopes for the future there. So. <laughs> All right. So now that my mind is hurting from this conversation, uh, uh, Sean, do you want to jump into your topic? Yeah, I guess it would be a step down from Sam, but a step up from where we are. It would be more about designing for the voice, because right now, how we navigate and figure out how to use something like Siri or Cortana, it is just a set of actions that humans have already predetermined, uh, like the things it can and can't do and can't access, the data it can access and can't. And once that library of statements and logic evolves, it then becomes a complicated task for like information architects to figure out if I say a command, like navigate to home, will it use like the natural maps, native apps app, or will it use Waze or Google uh, Maps without me having to specify, but also if there's overlap, like those overlapping commands where I can say, just take a note, blah, 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 blah. And there's so many, I have so many apps that can take notes and then it'll ask me, blah, blah, blah. 
And if I don't want it in a specific one, that's just a lot of burden on the user. So it's just trying to navigate this invisible interface to perform actions. So if there's a, how do we design for like the user's intent? Uh, that's my question. Cause, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Scott, do you want to lead us off on this one again, since it's sort of your maybe area of expertise compared to the rest of us? Well, uh, I think with, um, with any sort of, uh, hands-free user interface, it has to be a learning interface. And, uh, at the moment, the, the interfaces that are out there, whether you're talking about Cortana or Siri or Google Now or even the Amazon Echo, when you're talking about those kinds of interfaces, they're not quite learning interfaces yet. Like with Siri, I, I use Waze as my uh, primary navigation tool, but if I ask Siri where something is, it opens up Apple Maps. Uh, and I have not found a way to uh, change that within Siri. And so I, I think as... As our computers are able to, I guess, learn what we, what our own uh, idiosyncrasies are and what our preferences are, then we'll start getting better interaction with that kind of, uh, with with using voice control. Because you know what I'd really like to do is be able to, you know, say, "Hey Siri, how do I get to you know this address?" And it opens up ways instead of of Google Maps or uh, Apple Maps for that matter. So I think, a, I think as, uh, as our programs become much more capable of, of learning and adapting and evolving uh, without becoming artificial intelligence, so I'm not talking matrix here, we're, <laughs> we're all good, you know, uh, but as they start to learn our preferences and know what we're asking better, uh, individually, then that's when we'll start seeing a little bit more power in in this kind of interface. And that actually makes me think to like Sean's earlier point about setting up boundaries and sort of asking, are you sure you want to do something before allowing them to proceed or just not allowing them to move at all? That right now, since many of these platforms are trying to control their experience so much, um, especially like with Apple's platform and Siri, they try to keep you within that ecosystem. And that helps with a lot of other aspects such as uh, security and, and those sorts of concerns. But it also prevents you from having the experience that you believe and perceive that you should be having with these sorts of tools, especially when they integrate these personalities and make it seem like it's an actual person responding back to you. And if the person responding back to you continues to ignore your preferences and your like opinions on how things should be done, you're probably going to get angry at that person and no longer interact with them. Um, and I think that's what we're running into with a lot of these situations. So there does have to be flexibility built in for successful design in this area, I feel. But Sam, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I know a lot of people would probably say an easy solve for this would be to centralize everything, to have everything in one place to where everyone just goes here and they can grab whatever they need and take it away and do whatever they want with it. But I feel like this is more everybody having to work together. We have, uh, we use an awesome tool called Slack. Slack's a nice messaging platform. But it's also open to the world. It pretty much plugs into everything. And anything can get in there and access the data and take it and do whatever you want with it. I've recently started working with uh, the Facebook APIs. And they're great. You can do a ton of stuff with them. But they're so restrictive in the data that you can actually take and manipulate. Which 
kind of turns into a security thing. But if people want these things to work the way that we work, which is we're just, we are ambiguity. That's what we are. Uh, everyone does something different and they usually have different meanings or alternative motives. There's other things going on. There's so many other things that kind of tie into this, but I think that being able to access the data that you need to access from whatever provider, instead of putting it all into one place and hoarding, like Facebook will do, like Google does, like Apple does, like all these companies that hoard the data, just sharing that data out and making it work for the user. I think those are a lot of things that can kind of work with designing for the user's intent. Yeah, and it's very much a like fine line to walk between not only just security, but also user comfort and how much they share. And it's a tough line to balance on because you want to provide the good experience to your users, um, but you also want to make sure that they feel safe and comfortable using that platform so they don't have to be concerned about, well, now my data is available to everyone and everyone knows what I'm saying when I'm asking Siri these questions. So it's sort of like a catch-22 in that regard that you can't give them the great experience without sacrificing the comfort and security that they also simultaneously expect. But Sean, what were your thoughts on this? Well, I, I was just hearing all that, and it I think it would be wonderful if that happened, but you'd also have to just look at the business cases for all those. Facebook, I mean... The way they make money is through all the information that they have and advertising and keeping it semi-secret and letting the eyeballs uh, be paid for. And uh, something like Siri, uh, it would be great if there was like some way to really, really deeply connect that all. But it wouldn't be to each other's competitive advantage to do that. And I know, like with, um, I know in the beginning of Siri, like it, it when it first debuted. I think like three years ago, three and a half. And like, it, it was a big thing, like, oh my gosh. And then once we started using it, you could, you figured out the limitations and it's gotten better and better over time. But I know Mr. Scott has done like lots of user interviews and surveys to figure out and see how that sort of first bad taste has led a bad taste in people's mouths. Oh uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, sorry, it, uh, sorry. It was a, uh, yeah. It's um, uh, it, it is that 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 the distaste is is caused from the expectation versus reality. Uh, so I guess in many ways we've come full circle. <laughs> yeah, and and I know uh, in one of your interviews somebody had said, "I wish there was a way to see like a menu of the commands that it does know once they learned the limitation." Yes, uh, which Siri prevents presents to you the first time you use it, and then never again. Ever you have you, <laughs> yeah, you have to ask what can you do, and then she'll show you the menu once more. But like you have to perceive that she would know how to answer what can you do, and if she's run into limitations, you're going to assume that she can't answer that question, so you're not going to ask it. So it just gets lost in the ether, and that becomes incredibly confusing. But I really like I. It's a very difficult challenge uh, to overcome. So hopefully we'll see some good come from your research on this, and see if maybe somebody uh, at Apple will catch wind of it <laughs> and figure out the the better way to design serious interactions with us. Right. I, I think uh, uh, we need to think about voice interaction as um, as uh, dealing with a toddler because. With with toddlers, 
like when you're talking about, you know, three or four years old, like maybe a little bit more than a toddler, you know they understand things, and yet they don't do what you're asking them to do. <laughs> so there is that level of frustration associated with it. Uh, I think if you go back to, you know, the 90s and where dragon uh, speech talk to text would work and everyone was pretty amazed by that. Like if you, if you look at the dictation uh, capabilities within most phone systems, they are pretty remarkable. Uh, they're mm-hmm. usually, you know, unless you have uh, a, a strange accent or are, are not speaking clearly, they're usually pretty good. Uh, it's just when you start getting into more of this natural language uh, requests that uh, things kind of break down. And, and I think it is because right now these uh, these voice interaction methods are very they're, – they're, they've been around long enough that we expect more from them. But they haven't been around long enough to be able to do it yet. So I think, you know, I I try to be a very positive uh, thoughts about the future. And I do think that in the next like 10 years, we're going to see a a market improvement in what's going on uh, with with these uh, voice interaction capabilities. And I think it's as these these systems uh, mature that they are going to become uh, significantly more robust and significantly uh, more interactive and significantly more usable. So uh, I, I do think that, you know, the next bill, each each time there's a new build that comes out, the functionality is, is much stronger. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it is a, a big leap in thinking of it from that, that it is like a toddler perspective, maybe will help us, uh, be a little more calm whenever Siri gives us that. I don't know how to do that response. Um, but it is a huge leap to go from just dictation where it is saying, okay, this audio wave pattern results in these words showing up on screen versus the sort of translation that Siri has to do saying, okay, that audio wave pattern means what to me and how do I respond to that? And that's a lot of difficult work in terms of the the programmers knowing what questions will be asked and what expectations people have. And then the uh, user interface and user experience designers saying like, when we don't know the information or there is confusion, how do we respond to that? How do we help work through that issue? But do you guys have any sort of final thoughts for us on this topic or world of uh, voice as UI? Doesn't Sam. sound like it. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, wake up. Did we lose Sam? No, I'm always here. Okay. <laughs> well, Sam usually has final thoughts, but it doesn't sound like we have any. Yeah, I, okay, I actually do have a final thought on this. Uh, and uh, not to be confused with Guardians of the Galaxy, but Guardians of the Universe, uh, if anybody ever comes in contact with them sam bantner it's my name i'd love to have a power ring and i'll help them design this interface that one day we so will which have. color ring are you going for which color which which yeah which color ring are you angling for i don't know i could do them all some days some days i could definitely do a red <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh i don't know blue i'd say i'd say i'm more blue most of the time I love the green lantern, uh, but blue lanterns are uh, they're pretty cool. Yeah, I, I don't think I could go with uh, the green lantern's willpower thing. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I can't kick this uh, Mountain Dew habit I have. So, <laughs> willpower's not my strong suit. <laughs> but do you have a preference? Do you think, Scott? Uh, huh, who wouldn't want a black ring? 
Let's be clear. <laughs> well, on that uh, note, then, um, I'm going to sort of bring us out. So, Scott, where can uh, people keep up with you and the work that you're doing? Um, well, I guess one of the easiest ways to do it is uh, to follow me on Twitter. Uh, my my uh, Twitter handle is mpig, which is five M's and a P-I-G. So that's M-M-M-M-M-P-I-G. <laughs> Uh, there is a story to that. And if someone asks me, I'll tell that. Um, and then, uh, also I do a weekly blog called 20 questions Tuesday, where I either answer 20 questions as obtusely as possible, or I've asked someone else 20 questions. Uh, and, uh, uh, I've been doing that. Oh goodness. For about 10 years now. And that's, uh, that, uh, the URL for that is 20 questions, Tuesday.com. Uh, and that's a uh, two zero questions, Tuesday.com. Awesome. Well, I'm going to leave it to Twitter to find out the story of Pig, because now I'm intrigued, so I may even have to ask (laughs) if uh, we don't get anyone to reach out in the next week. But thank you so much for being on. I know it uh, means a lot to us to have somebody with this experience and knowledge come on the show to talk to to us about uh, Voices UI, and uh, maybe we'll have to have you back on once we have this biomedical tech that... uh, Let's us just think thoughts instead of having to say them and seeing how we respond to that. That sounds great. Thanks very much for having me on. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Scott. Thank you. That wraps up the 12th episode of All of the Above. To check out our show notes full of material related to what we talked about, head on over to alloftheabove.audio slash episodes slash 012. And if you're interested in keeping up with the wonderful Scott Ryan Hart, you can get links to his Twitter and website there as well. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. To get in touch, you can find all of our contact information at alloftheabove.audio slash contact. But the simplest way to reach us is through Twitter, where we can be found at Above Podcast. Finally, thank you all for listening. It means so much to us, and it's really wonderful getting to hear from you all. If you haven't already, head on over to iTunes or your favorite podcast app and subscribe so that each new episode is delivered directly to you as soon as it's released. We will join you all again next week. In the meantime, try not to be too emotionally abusive to Siri.